Well, as we begin this new year, 2023, I would ask you please to think back just three years to the beginning of 2020. What do you remember about 2020? As we celebrated New Year's Day 2020, we had no idea what a freight train of troubles was heading our way. The COVID pandemic was the most obvious, of course, as the world had not seen a pandemic of that scale in over 100 years. It was bad. Many of you parents remember very keenly how that pandemic affected our schools. We all learned a new acronym, NTI, or non-traditional instruction, and that was just a nice way of saying, of course, that your, your kids were home every day, all the time. That was rough for parents and the children, too. How can we forget the health care problems of 2020, the shortage of ventilators, the pictures of makeshift hospitals, the daily reports of the numbers of deaths, the horribly long hours for many health care workers? That was hard. The pandemic also led to widespread economic problems as small businesses failed and unemployment surged. We had supply chain problems and shortages. Remember the great scare that there would not be enough toilet paper? <laughs> then there were the social justice problems. The shooting of Breonna Taylor in March 2020 in our own city. The killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May 2020, for which we saw viral videos of a police officer kneeling on his neck for almost nine minutes. And then came the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin in August 2020 as he was shot multiple times in the back by a police officer. Those incidents led to widespread protests and even in some places riots. Our own downtown saw smashed windows and whole blocks of business fronts boarded up with plywood. It's hard. It's a bad time. It was also a bad year for wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, and flooding. I could go on, but here's the point. As we began the new year 2020, we had no idea what was coming. Now as we begin the year 2023, what will it hold? Will it be hard or will it be a good year? We still have no idea. Well, this is a bit of a downer for the beginning of a sermon, but let me see if I can turn the corner on it. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. And as I thought about what to preach on this first day of the new year, my thoughts turned to Psalm 90, because Psalm 90, perhaps more than any other psalm or Bible text, reminds us of that sufficiency of God. And that steadfast love of God for every situation, what the future holds, is in the hands of our eternal God, who is our dwelling place for all generations. Historically, this psalm was a very popular reading in churches when they held New Year's Eve watch night services. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Psalm 90. If you aim for the middle of the Bible, you'll be very close Psalm 90, which Jordan read for us just a few minutes ago. The title, the superscription, which is also part of the inspired text, says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. 
This is the only psalm attributed to Moses, and it's generally recognized as the oldest of all the psalms. If the psalms were put in chronological order, this would be Psalm 1. Now, we know that Moses wrote other songs in response to some significant events. For example, he wrote what is called the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15 after the parting of the Red Sea so that the Hebrews could walk through on dry ground, and then the Red Sea came smashing closed again over Pharaoh's army and all the horses and chariots, and Moses wrote a song. We know the chorus of horse and rider thrown into the sea. Deuteronomy 32, shortly before his death, Moses wrote another song about God's faithfulness, reminding the people of the great faithfulness of God in the past as they were about to enter the promised land. And so Moses seems to tie his songs to significant events and significant times. We don't know exactly what circumstances motivated the writing of Psalm 90, but scholar and pastor James Montgomery Boyce has made an insightful suggestion that it's Numbers chapter 20. Because Numbers 20 and the events described there seem to match very well the themes of Psalm 90. So you're probably wondering, what happened in Numbers 20? Three things. First of all, the death of Miriam the sister of Moses, the same sister who had guarded his whisker, wicker basket in the reeds of the Nile when he was an infant. And then the chapter tells about how Moses struck the rock so that water came forth when God had told him to speak to the rock. And because of that sin, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. And then finally, Numbers chapter 20 tells about the death of Aaron, the brother of Moses who had labored so long by his side all those years in the wilderness. And, and these themes of sin and death match so well with the themes of Psalm 90. So perhaps Moses wrote Psalm 90 as a reflection upon his own sinfulness and as he grieved the deaths of his sister and then his brother. But even if that's just a guess, it helps us to understand some of the thoughts and the troubles and the trials that are in Moses' mind as he wrote Psalm 90. He is encountering some of the hard situations, some of the difficult times of life, including sin and death. The audience is most certainly those wanderers in the wilderness, the Hebrew people who had wandered through the Sinai Desert for almost 40 years at this point while an entire generation died. Psalm 90 has always been a popular scripture reading for funerals, but it's not entirely about sin and death, as we shall see. It's actually about great hope. So it's very appropriate as we reflect upon another year and upon the passing of time, my big idea today is this. When we reflect on our lives and on the passing of time, let us always and only find our hope, only, always and only find our hope in the eternal mercy and grace of God. It's kind of a long, big idea, so let me say that again. When we reflect on our lives and on the passing of time, let us always and only find our hope in the eternal mercy and grace of God. 
Let's see how that idea unfolds in the psalm. This psalm is laid out, laid out very neatly in four stanzas, each one emphasizing its own significant truth. The first truth is our God is an eternal God, verses 1 and 2. Our God is an eternal God. And Moses anchors the psalm with this thought. For people who had never known anything, probably, except living in tents and moving on frequently, God is our eternal home, our dwelling place for all generations. He writes, verses 1 and 2, O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, that is a really good place to begin our thoughts about a new year, because only God is everlasting, eternal, and unchanging. We cannot anchor our hope on anything that changes. Think about that. What else in your life is permanent? Your job is temporary. Your house is temporary. Even if it is big and fancy and opulent as the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina, it is still temporary. Your possessions are temporary. Your bank accounts are temporary. And most importantly in this context, our lives on this earth are temporary. But God always has been and always will be. That's the meaning of that phrase, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And, and not only is God everlasting, He's also our dwelling place for all eternity. Some versions translate that word dwelling place as refuge, which is a, a good picture of a solid home. It's not only the place where we dwell, it's the place of refuge, of safety from danger and trouble, safe place. Life is uncertain at best, but the person who is anchored and settled in God is eternally safe. And this promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. As he said in John 14, verses 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is our eternal home. And so, brothers and sisters, do you long for something unchanging, settled, secure? Take your comfort here. From everlasting to everlasting, our God never changes. He is our eternal home and our eternal refuge, a promise ultimately fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our eternal unseen God is where we look for our hope. Now that is the first truth in the first stanza, our God is an eternal God. The second stanza has a more sobering message. Our lives on this earth are very short, verses 3 to 6. Our lives on this earth are very short. 
In sharp contrast to the eternal character of God, we read in verse 3 and following, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. And and so Moses compares the span of our lives to three word pictures. Debris that is swept away by a flood, a dream, and the grass of the field. Now, for people who had dwelt in the desert for most, if not all their lives, a flash flood was a well-known and dreaded danger. A, A flash flood can arise very quickly and sweep away everything in its past so that almost no trace of it, if any, remains. It's suddenly gone. Not only are our lives compared to debris swept away by a flood, but then like a dream, verse 5. You probably had that experience of waking up and knowing that you've been dreaming, but you can barely, if at all, remember the details of the dream. Those who study sleep patterns and dreams estimate that most people only remember a very small fraction of their dreams. And in that hymn we just sang, Isaac Watts wrote, Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. From the perspective of God and eternity, our lives are like a dream that suddenly ends. And then third, he says, our lives are like the grass of the field. In the hot, dry desert climate of Israel and the surrounding area, an occasional night rain will fall. And when it does, the grass will actually spring up overnight. But the hot sunshine of the day will scorch it by nightfall. And so from the perspective of time and eternity, our lives are like that grass. This imagery appears several times in the scriptures. As Isaiah said, all flesh is grass and its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Our God is eternal, and His word, His truth, His promises will also stand forever. Hallelujah. Now, if these three images, a flood, a dream, the grass of the field, seem like Moses is hammering the point, the nail a few strokes too many, it's because he's making the point exceedingly clear. Your life and mine is over so quickly. And the older we get, the more we realize how quickly the years fly by. We are made from dust, and we shall return to the dust. That's a sad and sobering thought. But the next stanza is even worse. We've seen that our God is an eternal God, that our lives on earth, in sharp contrast to God, are over so quickly. But now in the third stanza, our lives are marred by sin and the certainty of judgment. Verses 7 to 11, our lives are marred by sin and the certainty of judgment. 
Not only are our lives temporary, but we as humans have an even greater problem than that. Our sins and their consequences, to which Moses draws our attention beginning in verse 7. He writes, he sings, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. For the years of our life are 70, or even by strength, reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The wrath of God is never a popular topic, but in these five verses, we find the words wrath and anger attributed to God five times. So this is just not an offhand mention. Our real human problem is not that our lives come to, come to an end all too quickly, but it's the certainty of God's judgment and wrath because of our sins. And you might recognize in verse 8 that this righteous wrath of God is not just because of our obvious sins, but he mentions our secret sins, the ones you know only to yourself in your heart. The ones done in the dark are brought out in the light before God. Notice also that Moses here has traced the root the root cause of death that he's spoken of in verses 3 to 6, to sin, verses 7 to 11. It is just as Paul wrote in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The fact that we are dust and we shall return to dust as quickly as a dream is over is rooted in our sinfulness and our rebellion against God. Now, there are plenty of people in this world, people who don't believe the Word of God, who at least outwardly accept the idea that we're all going to die, our lives will soon be over, and they claim to be at peace with that. They say things like, death is natural. It's just part of the circle of life. It's normal. That is not what the Bible teaches. Death is the enemy. Death came into the world as a result of sin, so it is not part of God's perfect design. Jesus died and rose again to conquer death. This third stanza also reminds me of Hebrews 9.27, which says, And just as it, as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. You know, that, that short verse is a pretty good summary of the second and third stanzas of this psalm. Our lives are over very quickly, verses 3 to 6, and then comes the righteous judgment and wrath of God, verses 7 to 11. And, and even our lives on this earth before we die are marked by toil and trouble, verse 11. That's a picture of Genesis chapter 3. And the curse that our labors will bring forth thorns and thistles and pain. Well, this isn't a very cheerful psalm, is it? We've seen three truths in the first three stanzas of the psalm. Our God is an eternal God. Our lives on earth are very short, 
verses 3 to 6. And not only are they short, but our lives on earth are marred by sin and the certainty of judgment, verses 7 to 11. So no, this is not a very encouraging psalm until we come to the fourth and final stanza, which reminds us our only hope is the mercy and grace of God, verses 12 to 17. Our only hope is the mercy and grace of God. The, the entire psalm has been building, has been setting up for this point. And unless you think that the truths of the first or the second and third stanzas are too harsh, too unpleasant, consider this. We must understand those sobering truths in order to fully realize that our only hope is in the grace and mercy of God. We have to understand that we can place no hope in ourselves in this life. Our only hope is the grace and mercy of God. And so finally, we have come to the good news of this psalm because Moses turns from our human condition, verses 3 to 11, to our human hope. And we see this as he closes out the psalm with three petitions. Teach us, in verse 12. Satisfy us, verses 14 and 15. Establish the work of our hands, in verses 16 and 17. And each of those three petitions comes as a response to our human conditions in the second and third stanzas. See, it all flows together. First, teach us, in verse 12, is an answer to verses 3 to 6, where we see how quickly our lives are over. And, and so Moses prays, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, because our days on this earth are numbered, in short, teach us to live wisely each and every day. There are some commentators that think verse 12 fits with the previous stanza, but because it's a prayer request and because it's in response to our human condition, most place it as a part of this last stanza, as I do. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom is not asking that we might have some clue about how long we will live, how many days we will be allotted. That's not the point. It's a prayer that we will live wisely for all the days that we have. We are never told how long we will live, and we wouldn't expect God to answer that question. But we can and should pray that whatever days we have, we will use wisely before God. Again, James Montgomery Boyce is helpful at this point as he writes, This is a prayer that God will help us to live holy lives, which is the path of true wisdom. How do we make each day count for God? We make each day count by determining to use our days wisely rather than pursuing selfish things, meaningless things, trivial things. Now, as I say that, I, I don't mean that we can never have a day of relaxation or fun or rest, because that too is a gift from God. But what is the primary goal of your days? Is it to live for yourself? Is it to live at ease? Is it to live for pleasure and wealth? 
Malcolm Forbes was the publisher of Forbes magazine from the 1960s until his sudden death by a heart attack in 1990. He was well known for his extravagant lifestyle, spending on huge parties, travel, his collection of homes, yachts, aircraft, art, Harley-Davidson motorcycles, specially shaped hot air balloons, and Fabergé eggs. He owned more than 365 works by Peter Carl Fabergé, including nine imperial eggs. You probably heard of Fabergé eggs, but these imperial eggs were yet another class of Fabergé eggs created for the Russian imperial family during the time of the Tsars. A single imperial egg is now estimated to be worth over $30 million. He owned nine of them. Think of that, over a quarter billion dollars of wealth in nine eggs. That popular phrase and bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins, was first attributed to Malcolm Forbes. He died suddenly of a heart attack, and he most certainly did not win. You know, that kind of life must never be the goal for the followers of Jesus. Teach us to number our days, that we may use each one of them wisely, the wisdom to live for God rather than for self and for the trinkets of this world. Reminds me of the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, 16. Jesus told it like this. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. As we begin the year 2023, let us set our hearts once again to live wisely, to strive to have a heart of wisdom, to serve God, to build up his kingdom rather than our own kingdom. That is the first prayer request in response to our human condition. The second prayer request in this final stanza is satisfy us, verses 14 and 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. We can never find satisfaction in Fabergé eggs. But when we find satisfaction in the steadfast, eternal love of God, we also learn how to be satisfied and glad for the rest of our days. This is a prayer not that we would be satisfied and happy with the toys and trinkets of wealth and prosperity, but that we would find our satisfaction in God and His love. And indeed, nothing can ultimately satisfy our hearts other than the love of God. 
If you make it your life's goal to find satisfaction in wealth, you will never succeed because you'll never have enough. The wealthy person always wants just a little more. But if your goal is to know the steadfast love of God, you will find true and lasting satisfaction because you'll have it all, all of God's love. Now, where do we most fully find the steadfast love of God? The greatest expression of the steadfast love of God is Jesus Christ and His death on the cross for our sins, which we will celebrate in just a few minutes as we take the Lord's Supper together. We all know very well John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Our lives on this earth are so short, but through the steadfast love of God, in Jesus, we have eternal life. Romans 5.8 adds, but God shows His love for us. There's that steadfast love of God again. God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16 adds, by this we know love that He laid down His life for us. And so, in these first two prayer requests, we see the solution for the troubles of the previous two stanzas. Our life on earth is very short, but through the steadfast love of God and Jesus, we can have eternal life. Our lives on earth are marred by sin and the certainty of judgment, but Jesus died for us, taking the judgment on himself so we can be free from the judgment and wrath of God. My friends, do you know the steadfast love of God? that God through His Son, Jesus Christ, loved you enough to die for your sins, taking all that wrath of God upon Himself so it doesn't fall on you. May we seek to know the steadfast love of God all the more deeply, all the more completely in 2023. So Moses wraps up this psalm with, prayer request that God would teach us to live wisely all our days, that God will satisfy us with His steadfast love, and, and finally, that God will establish the work of our hands, verses 16 and 17. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us, yes, establish the work of our hands. Notice that in verse 16, he's speaking of your work. In verse 17, he's praying, establish the work of our hands. And it, as if the two are actually one and the same. Similar to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. His works and our works establish the works of our hands. Now, 
there's a tradition from the early Jewish rabbis that this prayer of Moses, establish the work of our hands, was originally what Moses prayed at the dedication of the tabernacle and all its ornaments. And so, they say, it became the prayer of Moses at the dedication of every significant building or accomplishment for God. I don't know if that's correct or not. But it is a good picture that God has given his people things to do. And then we pray, establish the work of our hands for his glory. Moses is now very likely near the end of his life as he writes these words. He has led Israel through 40 years in the desert, praying sometimes that God would not destroy them. I think, for example, of Exodus chapter 32, after that incident with the golden calf, God, Moses prayed that God would turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster, this judgment on your people. And, and now, as Moses contemplates his own death and turning over the torch of leadership to Joshua, who will take the people into the promised land, he again prays, establish the work of our hands. I think the thought in his mind is, may this last 40 years of, of all my labors, all my toils, all my frustrations, all my challenges, may it not be for nothing. Lord, establish the work of your hands for your glory. In the same way, it's appropriate for us to look at our labors for God and pray that he would make them lasting. When a preacher proclaims the word of God to the church, he prays in his heart that God would make his labors effective, that Christians would be encouraged, that some might come to Christ, that God's people would be strong and courageous, establish the work of our hands. When a missionary labors in a foreign and often hostile land to plant a church and spread the gospel, he or she prays, establish the work of our hands. When a Sunday school teacher brings a lesson to the church, a lesson to the children, he or she prays that these little seeds of truth would sprout and grow and bring forth fruit 30, 60, or even a hundredfold, that God would establish the work of our hands. When a child of God gives even so much as a cup of cold water to a thirsty one, in the name of Jesus. Oh, we pray that God would establish the work of our hands. And so may this also be our prayer for 2023, that we would serve God faithfully and humbly, doing his work, the things that he was called us to do, and that he would establish the work of our hands for his glory. That's the picture, verses 16 and 17. Now, as we step back and look at the flow of this psalm, I'm reminded of the gospel. You know, one way to present the gospel in four points is to talk about God, man, sin, and salvation. That's an easy outline to present the gospel. God, man, sin, salvation. Look at this psalm, verses 1 and 2. Our God is an eternal God. Verses 3 to 6, man. Our lives on earth are so short. Verses 7 through 11, sin. Verses 12 to 16, salvation. The steadfast love of God. This is the gospel according to Moses. 
And do you notice how this psalm has come full circle? In the first stanza, we live in this intimate personal relationship with God as He is our dwelling place for all generation. He is our God. In the next two stanzas, that word our is missing. He's the judge. We see His wrath. We see His anger. But then in verse 17, He once again is our God and His favor is upon us. Once again, it's New Year's Day. May I suggest three prayer requests for our new year. Teach us to number our days, that we may live, the, live them with the wisdom that honors God. Satisfy us with your steadfast love revealed in Jesus Christ this year. May we know all the more, all the deeper, the steadfast love of God in Jesus Christ establish the work of our hands this year for God's glory. Let's pause for a moment of silence to reflect on God's Word. Oh, Father, Maybe we be, may we be filled with awe at our eternal God, our dwelling place for all generations. We confess, we recognize that our lives are short, that they are marred by sin and the certainty of judgment. May we be refreshed by the truth that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised again the third day. And so teach us to number our days. Satisfy us with that steadfast love of God and establish the work of our hands for your glory. I pray it in Jesus' name.